Welcome to WMFA, a podcast about why and how we write. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and this week I'm speaking with Michael Parker, whose new novel, Prairie Fever, is out now from Algonquin Books. Michael is the author of seven novels and three story collections, and his short fiction and nonfiction have appeared in The Washington Post, The New York Times Magazine, The Oxford American, Runner's World, and elsewhere. His work has been anthologized in the O. Henry Prize stories and the Pushcart Prize. He recently retired as the Nicholas and Nancy Vack Distinguished Professor in the MFA Writing Program at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. Prairie Fever is about two sisters, Elise and Lorena, growing up in the hardscrabble landscape of early 1900s Oklahoma. It's also about a life-threatening blizzard, a love triangle, and the ways in which only our families can know and, ultimately, hurt us. Told over decades, Prairie Fever follows Elise and Lorena's relationship through intense intimacy, long estrangement, and beyond. One of my favorite pleasures of reading Prairie Fever was its dialogue. The characters are richly drawn and talk with all the snap and crackle of an Aaron Sorkin script. Their personalities and the depth of their inner lives, set against a series of severe early 20th century locales, move the story along. As we discuss here, though, that momentum didn't always come easily. We also talk about growing up in a family of storytellers, turning your characters into interesting people, and writing what Michael calls the rhythm of one's thoughts. You can hear a bonus segment from our conversation, in which we discuss how being a runner and a swimmer has impacted Michael's writing, by joining the WMFA Patreon community at patreon.com slash WMFA podcast and pledging just $2 a month. Someone said you can only write from the point of view of a late middle-aged white Southern college professor, I would have said, just send me to law school. I would love to start by just like talking about your interest in this era and Um, and whether, you know, what, what kind of brought that about. Well, so the book came out of a story that my mother told me about my grandmother, who grew up in Lone Wolf, Oklahoma. And my grandmother died before I was born, or maybe she died a couple weeks after I was born. I never knew her. And um, the only story I knew about her, because my mom didn't talk about her very much, was that she and her older sister, they lived out in the country. And in the winter, during snowstorms, their mother insisted they go to school and would put them on the horse and pin blankets around them and then slap the horse's croup and the horse knew the way to school. The teacher would unpin them. They would, you know, have a half day school usually, which is because that's the way they did it back then. And then they would put them back on the horse and pin them back into their world and send them home. So that's really, you know, that was my interest in the period came out of that's actually when my grandmother was going to school. Mm -hmm. And so, um, was it that as just like a kind of feat of transportation or was it that idea of them kind of, cause you, cause you write so evocatively and it, and it's a touchstone throughout the book of this, like this little world that they, the two sisters have together inside that blanket. Yeah. At first it was, I was just interested in this. I mean, it was so foreign to me growing up where I grew up in Eastern North Carolina, where it's, it never snowed. And so there was that aspect, the sort of crazy winter aspect of it, but also just, this idea of them being very, very close physically in the space that was contained and, you know, and then just the image of 
this horse going by with these figures on it that are all shrouded in these blankets in a storm. And, you know, that's all you need to write a novel. Actually, you don't. I mean, people have these grandiose ideas, which are great, but um, sometimes I think, I mean, I remember what Faulkner said about The Sound and the Fury, that he, someone said, well, where did this idea come from? And he said, I saw a little girl in the tree and she had muddy pants. Mm. And that image occurs in the book, but it's not, that's not what the book is about, obviously. So, you know, in order for me to get going, all I need is an image, and that image really appealed to me. And also, I wrote it as originally as a very, very short story, because my last book was a collection of extremely short stories, like between one and three pages, all of them. And this was the only story that I had two people say to me. That one, I, I feel like, you know, is not finished. It's not... I need more from that. And, and when the first person told me that, I thought, well, they just don't understand <laughs> the form. Mm -hmm. And the second person told me that, it's like, oh, that's critical mass. So it felt it felt finished to you? It felt, it actually, it never, when I started to think about it, I realized it never felt finished. And that, you know, it was all synopsis. And the rest of the really short fictions were mostly scenic. Mm. Or they were just so focused on one moment that, they felt scenic and this one expanded over you know it took place over like 50 or 60 years because it took them really far into the future and um imagined what it was like for my great aunt who actually did move to wyoming and marry a rancher to come back to the east coast and visit my grandmother who was living in western north carolina where it's very sort of um lush and uh overgrown and just how claustrophobic that must have been for her and that was really the focus of the short piece so that didn't even make it into the novel really a thing that you said uh when i so you know we first met at the appalachian writers workshop um where you were giving a workshop that i sat in on and you said that you usually don't know what a novel is about until you've written it Two or three times, I think, is what you said. Um, was that true exactly. for this one, too? Well, I'm not sure I know what it is. Still don't know. I mean, it's about to be published, and I'm not convinced I know what it's about. <laughs> it's a terrible thing to admit. I mean, I know it's, I know, I do know what it's about. I mean, I feel like I know what it's about, and, and that it's obviously about siblings and about family. But, I mean, I think I, I realized, you know, maybe on the second draft, how much, how sort of dangerous Elise's imagination is mm. and, and how beautiful, you know, and how transcendent it can be and also how um, isolating it can be and how important it is in the, in the way that it sort of sets the book up structurally because the book seems to, and you know, because it's, most of it is in her head. And then um, the ways in which she can get, just get lost and that tends to, distance her from other people so in a sense I was writing about this kind of almost self-indulgence in the imagination which can be really magnificent and also sort of terrifying for people other people yeah yeah because I mean you th you can you can kind of extrapolate that out and think about like you know this would be maybe a really cynical way to look at things but that like any creation of any art is self-indulgent let, getting self-indulgently in your own headspace. Yes, and exactly. And also, we'd be where would we would be without it. Right. I mean, so we absolutely need it, and we need that time to to create. And yet, in her case, I think it's just she she sort of shrouds her world with these stories that she 
creates in order to believe the things that she wants to believe. Right. And that's what we all do. I mean, we have our our versions of what happened, which is why it's a part of the you know book tells the story from the same story from different points of view because I wanted to show how the sisters and how Gus saw the same incident through you know different perspectives. Yeah, that's something I've been thinking a lot about too lately. That idea of this isn't this isn't quite how it goes down in the book, but but you know more broadly, a memory can be kind of really positive for one person and then very negative for the same person experiencing the same thing. And that idea of there not being sign of kind of any objective truth of a situation and and everybody just sort of probably no matter what they would be told, kind of sticking to the narrative that they have developed for themselves. Exactly. I think that's especially true in families. I mean, I have mm. four brothers and and sisters. I have two brothers and two sisters, and and we're we're very close. Um, but when when we tell stories of things that happened in our childhood, there are five different versions of the same <laughs> yeah. thing. And you know, somebody will tell them we're great. We're all great stories. I mean, I'm actually the least sort of articulate storyteller in the bunch. They're all they all really love to tell stories and I just sort of sit there and listen to them. But, you know, when it comes around to my time I'm like I'll tell what I think happens and I'll say, No, that's not it at all and they, they you know, they correct me and they they shade it in the way that they experienced it, which mm-hmm. is what one does. But and also just this the shared sensibility of siblings and how powerful it is that, you know, you grow up so close to, to these people and at some point in your life, you realize that they're somewhere else in the world, and you're linked to them by all these shared experiences and a kind of secret language that you have, which is made up of memory and anecdote and experience and emotion. But yet they're off in another state with other people. They're married to someone. They don't, you know, you're not, you're not close in the same way anymore. And then they come back into your life for some reason, usually because something bad has happened. And then immediately, almost immediately, or you know, sometimes just instantaneously, you're right back where you were. And that was really what I was interested in exploring. Yeah, I um, I also find that really interesting because I'm an only child, so I am I am very fascinated by sibling relationships and kind of the the peculiar sort of characteristics of those relationships. And I, I think it's so, I mean, it's so beautifully rendered in the book in a lot of different ways, but, but a thing that I really loved is, is later on toward the end when Elise and Lorena do see each other again, there is obviously all the awkwardness and tension that is kind of built into their reunion, but then like someone is able to make an in-joke and it's sort of like, it does kind of like reset the dial a little bit. Like it's enough to kind of carry, carry things back. Yeah. And it's all, you know, a sensibility that's shared through language, and at least in our family, so, you know, someone can just mimic a, a relative of ours, and we're all <laughs> we're all right back in it. My daughter is an only child, and she often says, "You know, I'm fascinated by your brothers and sisters and the way that you all relate." But there are times when I'm glad I'm yeah. an only child <laughs> when you all get together because everybody's telling these stories and they don't ever match up and I only have one version of reality no one to contest it I thought that's a really wonderful way of looking at her experience I think yeah it's really true and I think like 
you know, and I think that this story is, is a really good example of this, the ways in which no one really can hurt you the way that your family can hurt you. Yeah, exactly right. Because had it been some other person in that town that ran off with a teacher, it wouldn't have caused such damage. Right. Yeah. Do you think that growing up in that kind of family environment is why you're a storyteller? I, you know, my parents were both storytellers, really. My mother, I mean, she she was a teacher and she was a Latin teacher and a history teacher. And so I think her her concept of history was that it was about stories, even before that became a very popular notion of what history is. She understood that it wasn't about recording dates and, um, uh, you know, official records, but rather about narrative. Um, and my father was a newspaper editor and a reporter. And, well, actually, he, he ran a really small newspaper in a very small town. So he not only wrote copy for the paper, but he took photographs of, you know, wrecks and giant gourds that people grew in their mm-hmm. yards. And, I mean, all the newspaper quotes are from real actual newspapers that were in Oklahoma or um, southwestern Texas um, at that time. So I just, you know, read all these things on microfiche. And then I um, I just pulled these articles and just kind of inserted them because, it's, you know, it's public record and, it, I mean, it's public domain. So, um, but I'm getting away from the storyteller thing. I think that I have always been really interested in listening to people and paying attention to the way in which they tell a story. And I think that I was really incredibly fortunate to be born and raised in a place where people seem to talk for their very lives, like in eastern North Carolina, where I'm from, it's just, you know, a barrage everywhere you go. Somebody's like telling you their entire history to the point where you're like, enough. I'm, right. <laughs> I'm just trying to get the milk and get home before it spoils. And at that time, you know, growing up then in the 60s and 70s, I wasn't that into it, really, to be honest. I just wanted to escape. And I thought, if only I can get to Chapel Hill or Boston or somewhere, then I will be okay. But, of course, it gave me way more than I understood as a writer because it gave me landscape and it gave me me language and the intersection between the two. And And also, I think you're just born with this desire to tell stories. And I think it definitely is, um, can be aided and abetted by the people around you, but it's finally up to you. It's up to you. Right. Yeah. I, I had a very, I have a very similar relationship with where I'm from too, with that idea of being in a huge hurry to leave and then realizing just how much of, you know, when I think about now everything that I have written and I am writing, just how much all of it is just steeped in where I'm from. Mm-hmm. Where are you from? I'm from Morgantown, West Virginia. Oh, Morgantown, that's right, yeah. Yeah, so just kind of West Virginia yeah. generally is is become, and Appalachia more broadly, honestly, has become. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, let's, um, you, you said that you were getting off track, but I am really curious about the research process for this. Um, and, and do you, uh-huh. is, is it normally, is there normally a big research component for you? Not really. Um, I mean, I've written one other book that can be considered historical, and that was, about Aaron Burr's daughter, Theodosia. I actually had two parts. It was about the last three people that lived on this island in the Outer Banks of North Carolina, which is really based on a true story. And then I read a lot of like 
books about pirates and mm. because you know the outer banks were just filled with all this lore, lore about pirates and I read about Blackbeard and I read tons of books about Aaron Burr just because he had such a weird and special relationship with his daughter who he had educated to be the most well-educated woman in America at a time when women you know were not taught Latin and were not taught Greek and were not even encouraged to to be that kind of broadly widely um educated right. um so that took a lot of that's the book that I've done the most research for the other ones even though a lot of I mean actually quite a few of them are set in the 70s and the, one of them two of them are also starting in the 1950s which these days is certainly qualifies as historical I don't think because I was born in 1959 they don't feel historical to me you mm-hmm. know they just feel like not exactly contemporary but I mean I was writing them and remembering places in the town where I grew up that felt like they had like that time had stopped in 1965 or something so I was more just borrowing from my repository of memory and of image that I had that every writer carries every person carries around with them and trying to tap into that um I, you know, I needed to do more research, but uh, my copy editor threatened to quit because <laughs> I am really so bad at math that I at one point had um, Lorena's husband going off to fight in World War One when he was seven years old. <laughs> and there are other places where I just couldn't keep the math straight and so, because there's, there's kind of a complicated time frame. and. Yeah. You know, my sense of it is that I'm just trying to tell the story and find the language to tell the story. And, you know, a very sort of arrogantly thought, well, I'll just let someone else figure that out, like my editor or, um, you know, the copy editor. And the copy editor who has worked on several of my books was like, no, <laughs> I'm not going to do this. This is your job. You know, it's your responsibility. And there is a point very late in the book when, um, Lorena comes back with her kids to Texas and, and Elise and they haven't seen each other in years and Elise says he's never seen the kids says well how old is everybody and the copy editor told me that when she read that line she burst out laughing <laughs> because she was thinking exactly how old is everybody <laughs> well right because you have to you have to be writing and just be like okay well I'll figure it out later I'll make it where I'll make the math work somehow you know you have it right yeah. in your head in these very loose vague terms Exactly. But I never went back and made it right. And her point is, is, is very well taken. Like, it's not the job of, I mean, she's not hired to come and clean up my math, really. I mean, I should work all that out. And I, I, I told, I immediately went into class and told my students, like, this is a cautionary tale because I was really embarrassed that I had assumed that somebody else would just be, be mopping up after me because it's really my responsibility. Right. Did did you do any sort of like, did you plot anything into calendars? Like as you, you know, you, you hear writers sometimes talk about these ways that they keep track of, of the book and and the people in the place, whether it's like maps or or date books and that kind of stuff. Did you do anything like that? I've never, I have never, I once wrote a novel, which, which I sold, but, but then I switched it with another novel because I had this sense that it wasn't as good as the one that I'd written in the meantime. So I, it was set in Mexico, and I um, it was actually about a, a guy who's running a furniture factory in, in uh, Virginia, southwest Virginia. 
he moved his furniture factory to Mexico at the same time that these kids from Mexico come to Virginia to work in the factory. And so I had no idea what happens in a furniture factory, even though I had relatives that worked in furniture factories, and I would ask them, and they would be so, like, what kind of a question is that? They wouldn't answer me. So I, I researched it, and I made a big poster of what happens, and it sort of followed the trajectory of a tree into, like, a chair. And it took me, like, days. Yeah. And I never, I never even used it in the book. I never looked at it. It probably was helpful in some way, but, I mean, I should maybe learn how to do that, but I feel like it's, uh, it's just, there's a certain kind of mind, I think, a certain kind of authorial mind that does, that makes those elaborate charts. And I think that those people are really excellent at maybe plot. Mm-hmm. And that's not exactly my, um, for, I wouldn't say it's, you know, well, I don't, it's not something, it's not that I don't think about plot, I do, but it's that I think more about it as a, a manifestation of character desire. Right. That it's just more what the character wants that determines where the plot goes. And so, you know, as far as charts, it's kind of hard to do that when you're just trying to figure out what the character's doing next and how they're going to get out of the room. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So. Yeah, that's for sure true. So, so when you were when you were looking on microfiche and everything for this, were you just like at your local public library, or was it kind of more to involve like research trips and that kind of stuff? I was in um, Texas, and so I went to like a yeah, I went to a public library in West Texas, um, and I wrote the first draft of the book in maybe God five weeks or something crazy and for me crazy that is crazy usually it takes me a year to get a first draft but I mean I was just doing nothing but working all the time um and I mean I would do things like wake up at two in the morning and write until six and then go for a run because I was in Texas and you have to go for a run at six o'clock if you want to not die and then I would go sleep for the better part of the day and then get up and just work again until midnight or something. And that went on for like four or five weeks. And, and then, but the, you know, the first draft, it didn't have a lot of the newspaper stuff in it. It didn't have the letters that became sort of central in terms of the middle part of the book. It did have some letters in it from Gus to his, this woman that raised him, his aunt. But I took all those out, and I realized that was kind of a. It took the book in a different direction and made it more sort of focused on him and and his past, and less focused on the sisters. And so there was a lot of revision because I think also in the first two or three drafts, I think Lorena was um, a little too um, sort of organized and the good sister you know mm-hmm. i mean she mm-hmm. was less nuanced maybe as she became mm-hmm. so yeah and i guess gus was weaker uh, just as a character to me i think he's grown he i hope he grew over the course of this the drafts that i did because i think his i couldn't figure out what to do with him except just have him be <laughs> the sort of receptacle of the girl's admiration and envy and emotion and he had to you know have some he had to have some volition of his own, and and that took me a long time to figure out because I was really just using him as a 
a cipher in some ways. I don't, I don't know how to really explain it. Yeah. I do know that when someone read it very early on and they said, I, I, yeah, I guess I really am crazy about this, the sister stuff, but I mean, I don't, what is Gus, um, is he a jerk? Right. Did you mean for him to be a jerk? And I was like, well, I, I don't mean for him to be a jerk, but I also meant for him to not be completely in control of what he was doing and not that thoughtful in the way he moves emotionally in the world. Have you joined WMFA's Patreon community yet? Patreon is a digital platform that allows fans to support creators and their work directly. When you become a patron, you pledge a monthly amount of your choosing, and I give you rewards like exclusive writings, notes of creative encouragement, and bonus segments, including a bonus segment from this very episode. That reward, by the way, is just $2 a month. Join today at patreon.com slash WMFA podcast. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash WMFA podcast. Thank you for supporting the show. It is really interesting when you look at the sort of like interior worlds and the, and the ways that it influences their behavior, the three of them. It, it is a lot about not just family dynamics, but also kind of like deficient parents in a way. It felt very like they each have this kind of um, origin story problem almost with, with one of their parents. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And there's a mis- there's the great mystery of, you know, what was Gus's mother looking at, which means so much to Gus, but really doesn't, you know, she could have just been looking at her shoes. I mean, he he makes, he really puts so much energy and right. um, emotional energy into that, sort of figuring out that one thing. And, and it seems like that's where he's looking when he should be maybe looking elsewhere. That seems to me a very common experience is certainly something I've experienced or you take one thing from your past and you blow it up and you put all this energy into um you know making it so um important and it really is not the thing that you make it out to be right especially like in his case when you have so little to go on it becomes even more valuable as that yeah exactly right yeah because his father just disappears so there was a lot more about him in the first draft. I mean, I had the and the book actually began with his, with him and with his experience at, and and with his leaving home and going to mm-hmm. um, Oklahoma. But I, as soon as I got to Elise, uh, you know, everybody who read it was like, I don't know. I mean, I see why you start with him because it makes sense chronologically, but. You know, as soon as you start, as soon as I get to her, I'm like deeply into the book. So I thought, well, that's not going to work. So I had to switch them around. Is that hard stuff for you to kind of come around to? Or did you, you know, when people give you feedback like that, were you thinking like, well, no, but he's like, I don't know. He doesn't sound like was quite the protagonist at that point in the process. But like, you know, like, well, no, he's so important to me. and, And this is this is the way the book looks, you know. Um, I mean, it might have been in my first blush of youth, but these days, if someone says something like that to me, and and it's someone I respect, I just it's the way it is. I mean, I I have I only show the book to to people, at, you know, when I'm when it's in a draft in a in a rough stage, I just show it to people whose opinion I really trust, mm-hmm. and if one of them says something that makes sense to me, then that, you know, if they say cut the first 30 pages 
and and they give me a good reason why I believe them, and it's not hard at all, and it gets less hard as you get the more you do this um and I think that's maybe the way it should work. I mean, there are things that I really wanted to argue for and when I got to the editing stage, you know, but they were just line they weren't big things they were more like she's a really terrific line editor, my editor, and she's also like kind of merciless because she's like. You don't need all this stuff, and she and she's right. I mean, I, I really, especially with the lease, like writing her interior was so fun for me, and um, what a, a critic would call stream of consciousness, which I just think of as the rhythm of one's thought. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was interesting to write because I was trying to mimic in the sound of the prose the way in which she understood the world. But I could over you can overdo that to the point where you're committing a kind of imitative fallacy where the reader's like, Okay, I don't wanna be inside of her head and think all the things that she thinks. I just want a sense of what it's like to be in her head. So that's where the editing was really crucial and, and allowing me and to see where I needed to cut back and let the story move on without getting bogged down and especially Elise's sensibility. That makes a lot of sense to hear because the the book does have such a a kind of crisp rhythm to it. And I kept thinking as I was reading it, especially with dialogue, it kept feeling to me, and I mean this in like, I mean this as a compliment. I it, it was it's like this like prairie Aaron Sorkin kind of vibe, you know, like the 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 repartee and the kind of like you can imagine all of these as sort of like walk and talk kind of exchanges. It's all very, it's all very sharp and and so it, it makes sense to me that like there would at some point need to be a culling of the stuff that's around that to kind of let that momentum really get going. Well, that, no, that's a great, I love that. That's a great compliment. I mean, I really, the dialogue was not easy. And also I I think one thing that is important about this book is that it's not, I mean, it is by definition historical, but I I wasn't trying to um, reproduce a way in which women or any or people talked mm-hmm. to each other in 1910 so that you know a couple of people have read it and said well it seems very the language seems very contemporary or the dialogue seems very contemporary and that's in, in part intentional because I'm not interested in the kind of historical novel that has people talking you know and faithfully replicating even the syntax of of then because sometimes that can just be so stultifying yeah and also who's to say what people were thinking in 1920 or, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it seems also like after Virginia Woolf, really, you can do anything you want as long as you do it well, really. I mean, she just opened the door. Uh, she and Faulkner and Joyce and and lots of other writers for us to just abandon a certain kind of attitude towards conventional notions of time and consciousness and just... Um, and 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 free ourselves from is the constraints of thinking about consciousness in a certain way. Yeah, I, I'm really curious on that subject. Um, like, at what point you hit upon the letters, like the epistolary style, as a way to because you because like it is kind of a puzzle to keep these two characters front of mind at the same time and and kind of front of mind to each other when they're estranged. Hmm. Um, it was well into the second draft. I mean, I, and I, and I wrote the letters, you know, were sort of 
they were pretty straightforward at first. And then I realized that that was just not going to work. And so then I hit upon the idea of, you know, Elise writing to her horse because she had such pride about what happened. And also because, I mean, pride in this book is a very um, dangerous thing, I think, as it is in real life. When people say they're proud, they're too proud to do this. It often means they're too lazy or they're too immature or... There to, I mean, pride is just, especially, it seems like it's used where I come from as a kind of euphemism for bad behavior. And, mm-hmm. you know, so she, so she does this thing where she writes to her horse because she can't quite allow herself to directly address her sister. And I meant to, I meant for the reader to understand that as both like kind of silly yeah, and also sort of touching because she really believes everything she says about that horse. I think she truly believes. I yeah, I I found those passages all very tender, and as a as a big animal person, they really definitely tugged at my heartstrings. And in this very little girl way, where you do want to believe that you know the dog just went to live on a farm and 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 he's running around and getting treats all the time and that kind of thing. Uh huh. Uh huh. Good. Yeah. How um how difficult was it for you to write the kind of you know the sisterhood? Um, were you were you quizzing your own sisters about their about their you know their lived experience? I wasn't quizzing them, but I certainly did borrow from them. I mean, my sisters are very close. They talk on the phone every day, even though one lives in Iowa and one and the other lives for many years lived in Seattle. She just recently moved, but um, they're five years apart or six years apart, maybe. And to say there's two brothers between them and they just are still and always have been just really, really close. And and they travel together. They're actually big. They fish like fly fish. They go all over the world fly fishing cool. together. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. And um, so, I I mean, I think I and, I, and the book is, is dedicated to my sisters because I think I stole so much from just watching them growing up and and thinking about them and um, the way that they related. Um, You know, someone asked me if I would write an essay about, you know, what it was like to write from the perspective of a woman. And I said I couldn't do that because all of my books have have had female characters. Right. And I just don't, I don't see what... I mean, I respected the question, but I don't see what the relevance of it, of answering that question is now because I've been doing it for 30 years and it, I mean, nobody, nobody's ever had a problem. <laughs> nobody's ever had a problem with it. So, I mean, I could understand it if, if you know, I had gotten many reviews that said this is not a convincing portrayal of how a woman thinks. But then I think we get into a dangerous area where we think that women are emotionally geared towards this kind of behavior or thinking and men are not and you know maybe that's true in some ways in some ways sure it's true but in other ways it's not so i think as a writer you especially as a novelist if you're only good at writing from your own gender that's fine then that's what you should write but i'm not interested in i mean i got into this because i was interested in becoming other people and imagining what it's like to be someone other than myself. So 
if I had to just, if someone said you can only write from the point of view of a late middle-aged white southern college professor, I would have said just send me to law school. <laughs> something, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> no, I mean, you know, I think I, I think I agree. Like, there's a, you know, there are certainly God knows examples of modern literature and when in which male authors write women terribly. But um, if that's not the discussion, then it kind of seems more like in either direction, frankly, like whether it's a man writing a woman or a woman writing a man, it's kind of more like those questions that that keep coming about like, well, how much is this like your life and and trying to kind of bridge that fictive gap. And like Roxane Gay has that great line about um, how it really like denigrates the skill of of creating a story if you're going to just say like mm-hmm. well is this just you right exactly yeah i mean obviously it's i mean obviously it is and isn't if it's successful i mean it, there's some emotional aspect of me and elise and in lorena and in gus and in the horse mm-hmm. if it's to be successful it's sort of like when people say, well, where did this story come from? And, I, and I'm always like very struck by that question because I think it's a good question and, a, and I wish that I had answers for it. But And I just did give you an answer for it in a way. I said this is based on this story that my, you know, about my grandmother. But on the other hand, it's a complete mystery why I chose it. Right. Like There are a million other stories about my family that I could have chosen. Um, why did this one reside for so long in my imagination until I had to sit down and work on it? And and why, after I wrote this three-page thing and someone said, well, that seems like it needs to be longer. I mean, I have a million things I could be working on. Why, why is it that that one struck? Why did I invest so much energy into these people in this time and place? I'm not, I have no idea why. I can't answer that question, and I'm absolutely content with the mystery of not knowing. I love that. Yeah. Um, that seems to me like maybe another thing that comes with, with practice. Do you feel like you've always kind of felt that way? Always been at peace with it? Uh, yeah. I, actually, that's one of the things I've always been at peace with because I figured out pretty quickly that I had no idea what I was doing <laughs> and that I was absolutely at a loss most of the time and that I had to trust the very tactile practice of moving a pencil across a sheet of paper and that was the only thing I could trust except that I knew that on some level I had to have both faith and doubt and that probably I needed to have them in equal measures and that if there was no doubt then the thing was probably not going to be any good because I would think that it was great and that's usually a bad sign right and uh and, you know it's usually a terrible sign and if there's no faith then that's equally dangerous so yeah i always when i first began i thought well every detail needs to mean something and every image needs to connect to this to some other image and um and all that is true i mean there shouldn't be like endless descriptions that don't do anything and don't move the story forward but especially in a novel you can have a little bit of leeway and you can put in something like, for instance, those bits of information that come from the newspaper that are central to the relationship, but that really are also kind of set pieces and that have their own 
mysterious, enigmatic quality. Right, right. Do you feel like you know why Gus's mom stopped? No, I have absolutely no clue yeah. why yeah. she stopped. I mean, I don't know why I made. I don't know why I made her stop. <laughs> you know, it's just it's one of those. I mean, I, I'm the one that made her stop. So why did I do that? I have no idea. And thank God that I did because then I was able to give him something to fixate on in a way that was both, um, you know, that brought about a sort of salvation for him because he had that one thing. And also it was detrimental to him because he, I think, misunderstood its importance. And so those are those lucky, beautiful accidents that happen when you're writing that are just completely mysterious and you don't know where they're, you don't know where they come from. Um, can we talk a little bit about your writing practice? Like, what what does it look like in a day when you're when you're working on a project? Well, I you know I I go when I was a younger writer, I wrote every day, and I had a set amount of time not um, not material. I mean, I never was one of those people who counted words, but I worked every morning very early in the morning. I get up at four thirty or five and work until you know, seven or seven or eight. And I would do that every day. I did that probably for 10 years when I first began. And then, you know, I got older and I had a child and she, she took up, she started getting up early. Nobody ever told me about children that they start getting up really early. I thought <laughs> they slept till eight o'clock. I don't remember ever as a child getting up at six o'clock and saying, mommy, mommy, what are you doing? Daddy, daddy, let's go do something. Your parents so, probably um, remember, though. Well, they do. They definitely do. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, but I didn't. I don't do that anymore. And I, I kind of work steadily, and then I take a lot of days off, which is not something I allowed myself to do until I had written three or four books, until I'd been writing for twenty twenty years at least. I don't know why that. Is. I, I don't. Maybe I've gotten lazy, or maybe it's just that I need more time between stories or not, especially novels just to recharge. And it used to be that I had so much energy and that maybe I was more worried about time and, and, and I'm less worried about it now, I guess I'm more, a little bit more relaxed. Do you think there was some, some needing to give yourself permission to like, that it's still going to be there if you take a day off? Yeah. I mean, I think I, I learned that it's not going to go away. But I think also that I'm also, um, as I say that, I think I'm terrified that I don't have anything else to say. <laughs> I mean, I think every writer's fear is that every time they write a story, that that's the last one that's gone, that's dried up. Absolutely. And I think, like, I don't know, speaking at least for myself, like, I think that's why, like, I don't know, I think part of this, too, is me being, like, still, you know, a pretty young writer and not being totally sure what exactly my practice like really looks like and what like me working at the way that's best for me looks like but like it makes me very susceptible to stories about other people's processes and when they're very different from my own I'm like oh shit am I doing this wrong you know that I can still have like moments of that yeah well I did I used to read those Paris Review interviews which I don't know if people still read them anymore but when I was a young writer that was the thing that you would read and you think oh my god I have totally gotten this wrong. I'm not right. supposed to do it this way. And I was forever reading them and then judging the way I did it. And then finally I just thought, this is not, this is not helpful. I have my own 
way of doing it. And then, then of course, it changes with every story. I mean, some stories I write quickly and a draft and then put it away and then take it out and rewrite it. And then, you know, it's it takes a year or so, but it could be a story of eight to ten pages, but it takes me a year to write it. And then other stories, you know, I, I'll work on a little bit every day for a long period of time. And just very, I mean, every, every project is different. Yeah. And it sounds like this one was, was very much, came, came very quickly, at least initially. It really did. Yeah. And it, the first draft did, I mean, it was, um, yeah, it was kind of a, a little manic and, um, a fun ride and, and, and a little discombobulating because I just didn't do much else. Um, but that's okay. You know, I mean, I got to, you know, you do that and then you sit and then you realize, oh, well, that's just the initial rush. Now you've got to figure out what all this means. And so it kind of doesn't matter if the first draft takes six weeks or a year, you still got to rewrite it, you know, several half dozen times or whatever you do. So I was, I do remember being really pleased that it was coming though, because there are times when you get midway through a novel and you just realize that this is, I don't. I don't really like these people. Mm. I don't. <laughs> I don't want to be in their world anymore. Or I don't understand them in the way that I need to. By page two hundred, and I did have a teacher tell me once that I could never say that I was writing a novel until I got to t- page two hundred, <laughs> and that always stuck with me yeah. because I, you know, I thought well, she's probably really right. I mean, even though that seems kind of an arbitrary number. She's her point is well taken, which is that until you get to a certain point, you know, you really don't know if this thing's going to make it. And I have plenty of 120 page starts at novels and that just didn't make it. That is a really good lead into um, just to kind of wrap up. This is a question that I like to ask everybody at the end of our conversations. And I'm I'm especially curious to hear your answer because of everything that we've just said, and then also the fact that you know you're you're retiring from teaching and um, seem to be at a, at a very sort of transitional phase in your career. Uh, which is, what does creative satisfaction look like for you right now? What does creative satisfaction look like for me? Yeah. Oh wow. Um, you know I. It's very different from what it used to look like. I mean, I think it, you know, for one thing, the market, things like whether the book sells or how how well it does, that doesn't matter to me at all. I shouldn't be saying that because I think my publisher would like for me to, you know, I want it to do well for them. But it's not, that's not where I get my satisfaction. I mean, I think, you know, I had a, a guy say to me the other day, I don't, I, I read about, one novel a year he's a poet Mm -hmm. and he reads books of poems all the time and he doesn't read much fiction he goes to a lot of fiction readings because he teaches in an mfa program but he said to me i read your novel in a day and a half and i have not done that with a book in 10 years and you know one comment like that can be so satisfying that if um, for me other things don't happen, uh, I feel, you know, really satisfied and and um, like I've done what I meant to do because I think, 
you know, he was telling me that he was enchanted, which is what Nabokov said a storyteller should be, an enchanter, an enchantress. Mm. And I managed to enchant him for a day and a half when he was supposedly on vacation. And 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 even his wife came up to me in a reading and said, I'm so mad at you. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, we were going to do all these things, like go on a hike and you know, drive over and go to a restaurant. He just wanted to sit on the porch and read your book. And she wasn't really mad, but I mean, that that kind of thing is just so gratifying to hear that, you know, in some way you've succeeded in taking someone to a different completely... I mean, and he said really s- smart things about the book too, which obviously just saying that, it, I took, that I, it took me a day and a half to read it is not... You know that's wonderful, but it's but it's also the quality of the things that he said about the book that made me feel like I had succeeded. And you never know. I mean, I never know fully. You know, um, some books I feel like I know better than others. Whether I got to where I wanted to get, but I always have a. Um, usually, it's a shape of a book, or it's a rhythm of the book, or it's a sound of the book that I have in my head, and um, and that's what I'm chasing, and I, I don't know that I ever have gotten there. I know that I haven't, actually, that I've never written the book that I have in my head, but I know that I've come really, really close, and that's all I can hope for, and that's where I get my satisfaction, to come as close as I can possibly come. Today's conversation was edited by Phoebe Wang and produced by Courtney Ballastier. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at wmfapodcast.com. Have a question or an author you'd love to hear on the show? Email me at hello at wmfapodcast.com and find me on Twitter and Instagram at cfballastier. And writers need feedback. If you're enjoying the show, please take a second to write me a review on iTunes. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio, and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is made in Pittsburgh by Courtney Ballastier, LLC. All rights reserved. <laughs>